Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode four of PT on the Rocks. And as always, I have Reagan Moore with me. Reagan, how are you? I'm doing good, man. Just trying to finish up the semester strong and keep my head up. Yeah, me too, man. I actually uh, been sick the last couple of days, so I'm uh, glad to be back and going. So uh, today we have Taylor Echo joining us to talk about over-medicalization. So Taylor, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. I'm excited to chat with y'all. So what I think is important, especially in a topic like this, we use a big word like over-medicalization. It's important to make sure we know what exactly we're saying when we use this word, words like over-medicalization and over-diagnosis. And things that seem to be misinterpreted and used um, interchangeably, but they're not quite the same thing. And overmedicalization is generally defined as someone being given a diagnostic label when they only have mild symptoms or even in addition to that low risk of future illness. And the label and then even the subsequent intervention that you provide for them is likely going to do more harm than good for this individual. Versus overdiagnosis, which is applying a label to someone who honestly doesn't have a reason to have this label. So the over-medicalization is taking something that's not necessarily a pathological and applying intervention to it versus overdiagnosis is wrongly giving someone this thing, that this label that we tend to give people in the medical field. So with that, is that sort of how you view these, Taylor, like over-medicalization, over-diagnosis? Yeah, I think that's that resonates. I would have to go back and look. I think, you know, that JOSPT series is really helpful for understanding that. Um, and I also like, there was a viewpoint that had talked about just calling too much medicine, I think was the term they used as like an umbrella for all those categories. Was that elephant in the room? Yeah. 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 I actually just read those papers and we'll link those in the show notes below the overcoming overview series, like a five-part series. Awesome. And they each talk about different parts of this issue that it's not just PT, this is, this is across healthcare. And um, the Viewpoint article, The Elephant in the Room, I think Jeremy Lewis might've been the lead like author on Lewis that. Lewis was lead and then Cook and Cook was on it too. a couple of others. Great, great paper. Um, so I think we're only students, right? So we have a very limited um, background and experience of what we've seen. How do you see this in your clinical practice or do you? I don't wanna make any assumptions. Yeah, I definitely see it. I think, you know, you can see it in a couple different ways, right? You can observe things going on around you in the moment. You can observe, you know, maybe notes that you read. So I'm in a, a physician-owned practice right now, so I can read all the primary care notes, all the specialist consult notes, and see, you know, the terms that they're using for certain things. And then there's also, you know, what the patient reports to you, right? Um, my doctor told me thus and such. My previous PT said blah, blah, blah. I have to always blank. And so I think that's a big way it comes out. Um, and if anything gets me riled up, it's usually from that patient reported um, instances of overdiagnosis or overmedicalization, because you know, I think often as providers, we can have good intentions and miss the mark. And when the patient is impacted, that really, that really gets my gears turning. <laughs> so whenever like patients have that, like, communication with you when they're like, Hey, my doctor said that I am like bone on bone is something you probably hear. Like, what do you, what do you do when that happens? Do you deflect? Do you like confront it or what's your, what's your path? Either. Um, I think the first kind of question I just asked myself is like, where am I in my rapport with this person? Right. And then also, you know, whether that is, is this visit five versus visit one, 
But even if it is visit one, you know, how has the tone been so far? If we've been kind of joking around or even they ask it with a tone of like, is that really true? You know, that's totally different than when they're like very adamant about something. And I almost get that sense of like, this is something that's become part of their identity. And maybe I shouldn't put that there just yet. And a lot of times, you know, it's when in doubt, just reflect back to them. You know, what does that feel like to you? Or what do you think about that? You know, and then that, if you're not sure that can help you better gauge whether you're going to confront or dismiss. And it was really cool. I had a student um, from Duke shadowing me a couple weeks ago. Um, She's out doing a clinical in the Portland area and her CI put her in touch with me. And we had two different patients both bring up chiropractic and their hips being out of alignment. And in the one case, I completely deflect it and like almost didn't even acknowledge it and just kept going. And in the other case, I like pushed pause, confronted it pretty strongly. It was well-received. We carried on. She kind of reflected back that she had learned and appreciated that. Um, and so it's kind of, I made the right call here because I don't always make that right call, you know, but um, just, it was kind of cool for the, that student to be able to see like the same question handled two totally different ways or the same comments. Even I don't think it was a question in either case. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what types of things do you look for to make that call? You mentioned rapport, but are there other things that, that you notice? Like maybe, I don't know, in my mind, the first thing I think of is just like kind of the way they carry themselves walking in their general personality and how they're kind of vibing with you. Like, I don't know, like I'm spitballing. Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. Um, Another thing that I'll often look for is like, are they somebody who seems to kind of do their own thing? And are they, do they seem really motivated or even, you know how sometimes a diagnosis can be motivation, right? I'm bone on bone, but I still golf 18 holes and I refuse to use a cart, right? Or are they more in the realm of, um, I'm bone on bone. I don't know why I'm here. It's getting worse you can't fix my bone on bone. Why am I not getting any replacement? All right. That might need a little bit slower, gentler approach, validating those concerns. And you know, other times it's like, let's just be direct, but not super confrontational. Right. And so just like, call it like what it is. Yeah. You know what? You're right. I can't reach in there and regrow your meniscus to make you not bone on bone, you know? (laughs) Um, And then they kind of laugh and like, so I can see why you're wondering why on earth am I in PT? And then we kind of talk through, you know, believe it or not, there are a lot of people whose knees look just like yours or worse on x-ray and they don't have very much knee pain. And so PT is a good way to decide, you know, are you somebody who might end up in that category with a little bit of work of bone on bone, but feeling pretty good doing the stuff that's important to you? Or are you somebody who, you know, maybe that doesn't do it for you and we need to take next steps, in which case you'll be more prepared for surgery or whatever it is than if we don't do anything at all right now. And a lot of times they're kind of like, huh. And then, you know, I can usually bring up, you know, oh, you know, I've even seen patients who, you know, are worse bone on bone in the knee that didn't get the knee replacement is the one that wasn't as bad as much or hurt more rather the one that was less degenerated, if you will, air quotes, right. You know, hurt more. It's interesting. It, it kind of gets into that. Um, what they bring to you and their past history and almost like what they've been told previously. Our first couple episodes were on um, the power of language in the medical field, especially someone who is perceiving that they're in danger and they're looking for help. And you're like their savior almost are coming to find you and they're trying to seek help and the good and the bad that the words we choose um, can possibly 
do to these people. So it's, it's cool hearing those ideas <laughs> continually resonated. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just presented that on Monday at our all provider meeting. I'm presenting again the same presentation tomorrow. And you know, to that point, right, Darlow 2013 talks about like people weight the advice from their healthcare provider more so than they rate the advice of or weight the advice of family and friends and the internet. So you know, thinking from terms of over medicalization, over diagnosis, right? Sure, they can read you know, squat college and think that they're fucked because their feet are flat or their <laughs> toes can't breathe. I don't know what, right. But if their doctor tells them that times that by, you know, a factor of 10. Um, and I even had that recently, right. With a 17 year old athlete who came in for a hip flexor strain, he like caught his knee in the mud, wonky sliding into base, strained his hip flexor and as you know, we're going through the subjective, turns out he's a chronic ankle sprain guy, has been to PT previously, um, has like a fair amount of like concern or even shame around the fact that he has flat feet. And, you know, the vibe I got and his mom even said at the end, she's like, this has been a totally different experience because that other PT, she's like, I hate to say it, but he was so negative about my son's flat feet that we were really concerned that this would be a long-term issue. And I'm like, you know, just kind of spent some time talking through that, testing some dorsiflexion, testing calf strength, right? That like that had resonated, you know, I think they saw that PT in 2019. And now here he is 17, you know, three years later is still hung up on this. And then also feeling shame for not stretching his calves. And I'm like, your dorsiflexion is fine. You have permission to stop stretching your calves unless you like the way that feels. I even told him, I'm like, you can't stretch yourself strong. Like if you're bendy to the point that you're always spraining, is stretching really going to help, you know? And sometimes like that was one where I felt comfortable kind of pushing back a little bit and even like making light of, yeah, you know, the military used to not let people in because they had flat feet. So that is a, a narrative that has been around for a while, but now the military doesn't use that as a criteria for ruling people out of the service um and just you know talked anecdotally a little like i have high arches i sprain my ankles all the time you're used to you know my sister has super flat feet and she rarely gets an ankle sprain so go figure like what are you going to do about that <laughs> neither of us have foot pain <laughs> so you know they, they kind of i think appreciated that just making it real it's funny you bring up the army and of uh, the flat feet thing um we just had a lecture in our advanced ti class literally yesterday about uh, military and flat feet and everything. I guess the my professor was like on a bunch of these studies, um, and it's pretty cool because like I got to, like hear him speak on it. It was super cool. So it's just funny like the way things interconnect like that. Um, but based on this acute hip flexor strain that you saw, and obviously he has a history of the chronic ankle stability, the chronic ankle sprains, and everything. I'm curious. Do you have direct access up in Portland? Yeah, so we do have direct access. Some insurances still require a referral. Um, and then I don't see in my current job, don't see a ton of direct access simply because I am in a physician-owned um, clinic and we have a pretty long wait list to get in for PT. Um, but there are other pros to that we can dive into later. But yeah, and I've, I've been other places with direct access too. So like my clinical at Nevada PT, you know, we saw a lot of folks without referral. So my, my question here around like direct access is when we talk about applying labels to people and the idea of over medicalization and 
some of these, um, we'll say unfounded, maybe diagnoses that tends to get thrown around by certain Instagram accounts. Um, where do you think PT fits in with this, like as a direct access provider and like, I guess we were talking to um, another clinician and he said PTs have the opportunity to be what he called like the offensive blocker, like the offensive linemen, like the blockers to like stop people from going to these higher risk interventions. And mm-hmm. I was just curious your thoughts on where PT is right now and maybe where we're headed, what we look forward to. Yeah, I think that's a great opportunity. I have those conversations all the time because even in my setting, you know, I had a great conversation today with a gentleman about his acute you know, neck shoulder ish pain and why he's not a good candidate for an MRI based on absence of red flags, you know, no motor or sensory deficits improving, albeit slowly, but it, he is improving and, you know, a couple other factors as well. Um, I think we can definitely be in a position of kind of putting a bug in their ear about setting expectations of what is and isn't appropriate. Um, and even another eval today that had, you know, acute onset, like low back pain, pretty consistent presentation with a lumbar strain, went to urgent care, you know, who rightfully did not do imaging and kind of you told him like ibuprofen and tylenol heat pack as needed stay active so i was like props to that urgent care pa <laughs> the guy and i think gave him a muscle relaxer too and like was very clear like used this judiciously and the guy ended up actually asking for pt because he had had pt after a car accident years ago for his upper back and really appreciated it and so that's how he got to see me but somewhere along the way somebody had scheduled him with like for like an ortho consult with the surgeon and then was like, Oh no, sports med can get you in sooner. So also had him on like canceled that, put him on with sports med for next week. And by the end of the session, I just kind of framed it to him as like, yeah, I really like Dr. So-and-so in sports med. Like, what are your thoughts on you? Know, what you hope to get from your appointment with her? And he's like, well, actually I'm wondering now if I even need that appointment because I don't know what she would do that's different than what you've done today. And I was like, yeah, from a clinical exam perspective, you know, I don't think her exam would be much different than mine. Um, If you're looking for continued help with medication management, she would be somebody who could play a role in that. If you were thinking you needed referral to something else, she could play a role in that. Um, I was like, but, you know, if you feel good with where you're at, I don't know that she necessarily adds anything to your your course of care. And he's like, Oh yeah, I feel good. I'll just cancel that appointment. Like, great. And that doctor's fine. I I like working with her. Um, but it was cool to just like, okay, maybe we don't need to like see three different providers for one condition in the span of under two weeks, you know? Um, yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like just hearing you say that, I, I guess it's my inner pessimist. I'm like, that is not the general way that things go with PT. I mean, it's because we don't have direct access. We always, there's the gatekeeper Mm -hmm. before they even see us. Things are starting Mm -hmm. to change down here, but um, we'll see. You guys can email now, right? It's like two weeks if you have a DPT. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is it three with a fellow? I should know this. Yeah, three with a fellow. Taylor uh, rolled her eyes. Um, (laughs) uh, One question we were going to ask is in relation to like management of acute versus like chronic presentations of common MSK issues, similar to what you're talking about with this patient coming to you with acute low back pain, where do you see the like general trend of the management of this patient 
Like, is it like how long, I guess, duration wise, or what are you sort of thinking as you see a person with acute low back pain? Like in terms of setting his expectations? Yeah, because I mean, we could say there's been places I've worked before where it's like, oh, well, you'll see them for six to eight weeks and then they get like better and they still see them like twice a week. Like sort of what's your like path with patients? Mm -hmm. So I usually try and set out, you know, what I think based on my exam and my thoughts of what's at play, kind of an expectation of a timeline. So for him, I explained, you know, you're still kind of in this acute subacute phase. We kind of use the analogy of an ankle sprain because that resonated with him and is also way less scary right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he was fortunately like really on board with the urgent care PA's diagnosis of a muscle strain so that's awesome also like great job for the the you know props to that urgent care PA I've never (laughs) even met him I'm like I'm a fan um but I think you're setting that expectation of like we know most things get mostly better in that like six to eight week range and sometimes that lasts 15 to 20 percent back to you know pre-injury normal might take a little bit longer and that can be frustrating, but also know if that is the case for you, it's normal that, you know, maybe you're not feeling a hundred percent. You have the occasional twinge, you know, in that eight to 12, eight to even 16 week range, you know, depending how things go, but that's nothing to be concerned about. And then kind of reiterating absence of red flags, you know, because your legs are working great. You're continent, you know, you, you weren't hit by a truck. Um, and you, you've had back tweaks before and you know, like they've been okay, you know, just like sometimes you roll your ankle and you can walk it off. And sometimes you roll your ankle and it needs a little more TLC. It's kind of how this is. And he's like, oh yeah, you know, that makes sense. Um, and then I usually put it back on them, you know, as I've like made the HEP print out. And usually as I'm doing that and we've kind of talked about, these are the three things I want you to do. And I also frame that in terms of like the dosage is suggested, right? Like use what's helpful for you come back with feedback on what isn't working and we can modify. Um, this isn't like a, did you do your homework? You're in trouble if you didn't kind of situation. And then from there, I kind of say like, how soon do you think it would be helpful to check in with me again? And that sometimes really throws people off. I have people like, well, aren't you going to tell me? So sometimes based on my read, or if I remember, I'll say like, I, you know, I have an idea of, you know, ways we could plan to follow up, but I'm curious to hear yours, you know, that sort of thing as well. Um, and sometimes they're like, aren't are you going to see me twice a week for eight weeks? And I'm like, no, not necessarily, you know, or, you know, oh, I need to be in here three times. So other times people are like, well, I don't know, like I could come in on a week or in two. And then I usually just kind of give them like, you know, I think, and sometimes if I really do think I want to see them every week. So like for the hip flexor kid, I was like, I really do want to follow up once a week or even twice because I want to get you back into sport because you're in season as quickly as possible. And then I would like to fade me out, but that maybe we can see each other every two to four weeks for a little bit longer and spread out those visits, you know, but in this case, I'm kind of like, I'm curious what they come up with. Right. And so I'm like, well, you know, if you're not sure, if you feel like you need that accountability or you feel like it's helpful to have a check-in sooner than later, let's plan to follow up within a week or so. If you feel really confident that you can run with this and you're comfortable just reaching out in my chart, if you have questions, then I'm fine with, you know, seeing you in two weeks. Other times people are super confident and they're like, well, I think I need to do this for it to work. So like three or four weeks, I'm like, yeah, sure. But no, you can check in sooner if you need it. But also I'm like, I don't want you to go three, four weeks and come back and be like, I did it twice and I hated it. And now I haven't done anything for three weeks, you know? And we just kind of laugh about that and move on. And so 
I think really making that decision collaborative and also setting that expectation of like, this is a process. It takes time to see change, especially with like a tendinopathy or deconditioning or even a post-op, right? Like this is a process. Um, I will not be in it at the same frequency, the entire duration of the process. Right. So like I had one lady recently who had her seventh visit with me since July. You know, I, wow. I think that was her last as <laughs> a way of popping back on my schedule and I least expect it, but I'm like, you know, seven visits since July. I'm like, not mad about that in terms of yeah. the care I'm providing. <laughs> That's awesome. It's funny. Um, every, the more you speak on the way that you kind of communicate, it, it sounds like you're almost getting a read for how they interpreted the evaluation process as a whole and almost like what they're going to walk out thinking. And something I heard, um, forget who I was listening to. They said like what you should do. Like one of the questions you asked them at the end is like, if you're going to go home and tell your brother, mother, sister, husband, insert person, how will you do PT today? What are you going to tell them? And then you kind of get their interpretation, their subjective view of it. And then something else that I've noticed and tell me if I'm a little misguided here. We talked, you spoke, we spoke about um, Eric, um, Mira prior to starting this recording and it sounded very much like his funnel approach where it's like here's all the evidence and here's a person in front of you and now you're going to just kind of distill the evidence within their context and provide it to them in a relatively unbiased way as unbiased as we can and you use a shared decision making approach which seems to be the new the new thing in PT right now but do that and then let them choose and you let them choose because they're an autonomous human being in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that seems like an accurate representation. I didn't know that was specifically Eric's approach, but I'm, I'm glad I'm following in the footsteps. <laughs> I also really like the ankle sprain analogy because it does take the fear out of it. Cause if people are like, it's my back, it's my spine, it's my spinal cord. Instead it's like, well, it's like your ankle. And they're like, Oh, I remember falling as a kid and being like my ankle hurts. And then you hobble around for a week and then you're good. Yeah. Another one I really like is the common cold right? Yeah. We all get it. We all get it more than once. Some are worse than others. They're all somewhat disruptive, but we also understand that it's not the same exact common cold every single time. Right. And so we, this guy and I also talked about this in context of various left knee pains he's had over the past 20 years that like, okay, so you've had three episodes of left knee pain and maybe also these like, you know, smaller, just twinges periodically that doesn't mean that they're all the same thing. They could be three separate things and it just happens to all be in your left knee. I think sometimes we, as humans, we have this tendency to like want to make sense of our experience. And so mm-hmm. I've had left knee pain three times and my right knee has never hurt, or at least I don't pay attention when it twinges. I don't think anything of it. So therefore I have a bad knee and a good knee. And yeah, he even like brought up essentially saying like he had some dissonance because he'd had an ortho consult several years ago and the ortho couldn't find anything wrong with the knee. It's like, that's awesome. That's great. <laughs> you know, he, like, but it hurt when I sat in this one desk chair. I'm like, yeah, there's this thing, you know, in the old days, they called it the theater sign, meaning your knee hurts when you sit in the theater. Right. And then like that sort of irritation there around the kneecap wouldn't really show up on an x-ray, but it's a thing that exists and usually goes away. Oh, cool. You know, moving on. another good one. I, I stole this from John Hodges at Nevada PT. Who's my CI. He would say, you know, if you're puking, you want to know, like, is it food poisoning or a 24 hour bug, but eventually you stop puking. And then does it really matter that much? No. I mean, I mentioned before that I've been sick the last couple of days and it definitely like once my fever broke, I was like, I don't care what it was. I feel fantastic compared to where I was 24 hours ago. I do not care. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, and to kind of tie this back to the, the topic of over-medicalization, I think it's really worth asking the question, is all pain pathological, right? And I think that is something that depending on the person can be really relieving for them to hear, you know, this idea that like not all pain is bad for other people it can be really frustrating and maybe even borderline feel invalidating. So I think that's a line I'm still learning how to walk. And I think when in doubt asking questions to understand their perspective is way better than telling, but that's something I've been kind of exploring lately. That's super interesting, actually. I don't know, again, who I was listening to, but they were saying like pain as being identified as the fifth vital sign was not the best step, according to some people, depending on your views of things. And I, I tend to agree with that generally. But um, it is interesting that you say that because we talk about over-medicalization, it's pathologizing the human experience is kind of where I sit on it at the moment, at least. And we're taking these things that are normal and we're providing like poor connotations and context to them. Like, I don't know, you, you like read some of Chad Cook stuff and he talks about shyness and um, depression and anxiety and some of these like mental conditions that is way out of my scope and over my head, I don't know anything about, but he's like, if you look at the labels, how they progress with a few decades, this might be the trend at the moment. And it's just, it's just interesting because pain seems to be following that trend as well but I'm actually kind of curious about that that patient you mentioned that you only saw you said seven times since July and what was the reason she'd come back was it the same recurring pain or was it like oh I want to go see my PT once every (laughs) couple months just like like the checkup idea which we've heard some people push pretty hard yeah both and um, originally it was, I forget what the diagnosis from primary care was, but it was like something that made me laugh out loud. Um, really what it came down to is she's very like mobile. She's a middle-aged lady, fairly active, chronically like underprepared though for her activities, right? So like that classic, like acute spike in workload or something hurts, I'm going to change course and do something else. And I come back to it. I flare myself up and, you know, devotee of the chiropractor and alignment and xyz um but very like thoughtful and inquisitive and curious and like self-efficacy through the fucking roof um (laughs) and so it was something to do with like upper extremity paresthesia um that was like worse at night um but i mean this lady like cervical proprioception also was just like all over the map right um, and also was swimming and getting like shoulder pain on and off of swimming and would sometimes feel a crick in her neck. And so it was just kind of this like thing. Right. And so what she has come in for is you're still mostly under the umbrella of like right upper extremity paresthesia and unspecified neck pain of unspecified chronicity or <laughs> something like that. I purposely try and keep my diagnosis because very, very vague. Um, And so we worked a lot on just like general capacity of the upper extremity, but also she was somebody who with like pec stretching felt a lot better and like median nerve glides could completely alleviate that. And definitely one of those people who like, you know, I'm not super confident in like my clinical ability to say, yes, this is coming from the neck or no, this is coming more peripherally. But in her case, I would lean more towards like, I think this is more peripheral I think this is probably more just like you sit in a certain position all day using your mouse within that hand and your conditioning is not super great. 
And then you go and you sleep on your side and your arm falls asleep. And then sometimes it falls asleep at work. And I get that that's scary. And I get that you think your back goes in and out of alignment from the Cairo and blah, 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 blah. So we had just had like tons and tons of conversations about education and asking questions and, you know, doing exercise and lifting weights and, you know, hiding the weight that was on the dumbbell until she'd done eight reps. And, oh, that was 20, <laughs> you know, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so I think because her self-management was, and self-advocacy was pretty good. Um, she, you know, could take something. You know, I probably saw her like four times in the first two ish months. And then those other three visits were every like six to 10 weeks. I finally had to kind of tell her like, all right, I think we're done with this episode of care. <laughs> and you're like, she also somewhere along the way, like woke up with a crick in her neck and that was really bothersome. And we worked on that and I gasped did some manual therapy and she felt better. And, <laughs> you know, that that is an awesome opportunity, man. If you make somebody's neck feel better with a little suboccipital release, they will listen to what you have to say. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, so her daughter came in to be evaluated and she's sitting in on the eval. Her daughter's a competitive swimmer and her mom's like, oh, oh. So and so Taylor can tell you to stop self-adjusting your neck. And I just looked at her and I cracked my neck just like that. I'm like, what did you say? And the patient goes, Oh, you brat. And then she catches herself and goes, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have called you a brat. It's just you're so young. And, and like it's like visibly struggling with this, like the PT just popped her neck in front of my daughter and told her it's okay to self-adjust. Yeah. The daughter was like, I think it was a little bit like, is, is this awesome? Or is this weird? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That's, I mean, that's awesome. The rapport was I, like, that was like pretty ballsy. And I recognize that, but I had enough rapport with that lady at that point that I felt comfortable doing that. That's awesome. Um, it, it is interesting though, because the, the, the sessions were so spread out and what, was the decision-making process to say, I don't think you need physical therapy, like true, like make an appointment, come see me, physical therapy, whatever that model mm -hmm. looks like for your uh, current setting. And then like, when you look more broadly on the kind of the state of things today, you take the idea of PTs being like the offensive linemen, the blockers for these higher levels of care. But then you also talk, not you, but like people speak of like this yearly check-in like oh to make sure everything's moving fine and like you're okay and how do we combat those two ideas that seem to be like they may be competing but also serve the same purpose in a way yeah I think the first thing is we don't have to do it all we don't have to all do it all right and so maybe not everybody loves that more consultative model of care that's something that um, one of my professors, Ryan Jacobson, is a PEDS professor, and he is a huge proponent and has actually done some poster presentations on how that plays out in pediatric PT. And that's where I get the name consultative model of care from him. And this kind of idea of like using the ICF model to say, let's focus on activity and participation level interventions um, and education and then use PTS check-ins to troubleshoot like what's not going according to plan or where has progress actually been made. Um, and so that, I think that's where that idea comes from for me and why I'm very comfortable with that. And that's also, you know, for my side hustle that I do remote consults online, probably 80% of those clients I only see once. And of those 80%, I would say 
probably at least 80% do follow up via email or Instagram or whatever saying like, I don't need any more. I'm good. I got what I needed from that. Now, granted, part of that is specific to that niche because they're all usually like active women, active, educated women who like are still trying to be active in spite of injury and just need some like more help with the planning side of things. Um, but then from like in a traditional PT model, right, where does that fit in? It can fit in however you want, right? Because ultimately, whether I'm seeing somebody twice a week for 16 weeks, like I am for one high school kid who's on Medicaid and had a really invasive knee surgery. And in Washington, they don't limit visits for folks under 19 who've had surgery. And she doesn't have gym access and she's a high school athlete. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to see you twice a week till kingdom come. Um, (laughs) Or at least, you know, until you're back to close to back to sport and maybe we'll pare down to once a week along the way. Um, I still am not viewing myself as the auto mechanic fixing her. I'm still viewing myself as the project manager. And so some projects are more hands-on, some are a little bit more, you know, remote or, hey man, can you get a second set of eyes on this? Or, all right, this is what I've been doing. This is how I've been troubleshooting myself. This is where I'm stuck. All right, we'll spend the session on that. Now go back and carry on and come back in six weeks if you need that again shoot me a note if you don't. Um, but then to tie that into your question about where does that fit then with this like PT as a checkup? Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to like, what population are you serving? How does evidence apply to that population you hope to serve? Right. Um, and then what are you going to do about that? Right. So like, if you're talking about MSK or even screening for injury risk reduction, like, I'd have a hard time making a case for that. If you're talking about, say, older adults and screening for fall risk, use something like an Otago or whatever, could be super fucking rad, right? Like, there's good evidence that you do a screening, you give them a home-based program, you screen them again, and they usually improve, right? So if I'm remembering that correctly from Jerry, somebody correct me in the show notes if I'm not. Um, (laughs) I think it really just comes down to, like, what is your niche, which I hate that word because I try to avoid it. Like I don't like having a niche, um, in many ways, but like, what is your population that you serve and what do they need that you can offer? Right. Okay. Yeah, it does. Uh, that's just like, that's kind of a, a circle I've been trying to square recently is like, I personally, the idea of the, the yearly checkup thing, I'm not totally on board with just because I don't like the evidence for a lot of these things we do like injury risk reduction, injury prevention, these things like that. I'm like, I don't know where we stand. Oh, I know where I think we stand on this, but that's a whole other story. And I don't know if that fits in with the yearly PT, unless it is like a consultative, like I have this worry about my ACL that I had reconstructed a decade ago. I just need some reassurance that I'm fine. And maybe it takes one or two two of those and then that's fine. That's it. Um, but again, that's very situational and context dependent. Well, and even like, if you want to think of it, you, the two other veins where you can take that conversation, one would be like, what's the motive for the yearly check-in, right? If you're having a motive for a yearly check-in under this guise of, oh, you know, a large percentage of people who could benefit from PT don't get it. So therefore we need to get them in the door. Um, well, that sounds like you're really just trying to pad your pocketbook under a guise of altruism. If on the flip side, it's like, hey, I'm part of this, you know, like I said, this multi-specialty practice, 
primary care does fall prevention screening currently, but then sometimes doesn't do anything about it. What if we were, what if PTs were administering a DGI or whatever, you know, out standardized outcome measured with good evidence, and then using that to stratify people who go to PT for falls prevention or fall risk reduction, whatever you want to call it, and people who don't, or they're going, getting them, those people into like a community-based group exercise class, right? Um, so you could kind of take that two ways, like what's the motive, right? Um, and I think that's where, where you practice probably really drives that, you know, on the other piece of the puzzle, I think too, then is kind of the question of like, does counseling work? And the answer is pretty unequivocally no, right? Like if you talk to Geronimo at all about, you know, counseling for physical activity from primary cares, it doesn't work. Um, so why would us encouraging people to get 150 minutes of activity be any different? Whereas when that patient comes in and is like, this is what I'm already doing activity-wise, right? The lady I saw seven times since July, she already is physically active. She maybe needs to like learn to modulate her activity a little better, right? Or at least have some awareness around when I can go hard and when I can't based on how prepared I am over the past six weeks of activity. Um, but if you think of like that trans theoretical model of change, right? She's not in pre-contemplative or contemplative or even starting. She's in maintenance, right? She's already made the changes. She's already doing the behavior we want, which is physical activity. Um, then my role is just to help her keep doing that and help her self-manage. And I think sometimes PT then can be a choice point for people of like who maybe are ready to change but don't know how. It can be a really awesome opportunity for that. If they're not ready to change, it's going to be a tough uphill battle. And I think that's where you can have really frank conversations with people over time and exploring perspectives, right? And validating choices. And it can be done really respectfully, but also frankly. Um, I don't, I don't, so to get to your point, I don't know if it's a, a circle that needs to be squared necessarily, right? It's like a couple of things that are true. And there's a push for, you know, yearly check-in and it's just like, well, let's ask some more questions, right? Based on motive, intended population, outcomes and evidence, right? That's interesting. Well, we were speaking the other day about some ads that we've seen around the city about like, oh, your back hurts. What's your back pain keeping you from doing? And I'm like, this is just fear mongering. And talk about over-medicalization here, fear-mongering. And then that, that journal paper you mentioned too, that was that was a little soul-crushing. That's um, very sad. I was really hoping to like hang my hat on, yeah, just go go be active, go do the things. And then it's like, well, all right, here we are. Um, mm -hmm. Which of course, in hindsight, like, oh, of course, they don't, don't have time to do the things, they might do the things, they're not going to do the things. You telling them to do it yeah. isn't going to change anything. So <laughs> here we are. Yes. Um, we do appreciate your time and it's been a little over 30 minutes and this has been almost covered. I have so many more questions that I would love to throw your way because you, you seem like just as deep in the literature and the research <laughs> as I am. And then just as a provocative in your opinions as I am as well. But now that we um, you're our first guest and something that I want to start talking to these clinicians who have experience in the field is this, we are a podcast who's directed towards students and like mm -hmm. trying to like almost give different perspectives on things and directions, even things to consider. But let's say you were a student you go and hop in a time machine, you were a student again, or you give advice to a, someone starting PT school or even like about to go into PT school. What, what would you give them? And then, or what would you do differently if you could do PT school? Over again? Mm -hmm. I think the best advice I can give is 
I'm going to give it in two categories. If you're somebody who really knows what you want to do going out of PT school, figure out who are the people in your area that are already doing something similar and leverage the heck out of your status as a student to go hang out with them as much as possible. You know, so like I did that a lot. Shout out to guys like Scott Morrison and Neville Chu and Ryan Bogus in my area who just were like, yeah, come shadow me. Um, and even, you know, some local strength coaches that let me come hang out with them. And I learned a ton from that too. Um, if you don't know what you want to do, that's really overwhelming. And I'm not the person to give you advice <laughs> The podcast and asking questions. And just, I would say, just keep asking questions and keep an open mind. Um, in terms of what I would do differently, you know, I think it's really hard sometimes to come into school as an adult. So I had four years off between undergrad and PT school working and feel like you're being treated like a child again. Um, and if I could do one thing differently, I mentioned that professor Ryan Jacobson, my PEDS professor earlier, he was like later in PT school that I had connected with him and we would, you know, sit on the floor of his Star Wars themed office and talk about life or take a walk and talk about different things. But and even you know, that professor, Dr. Hauk, like we would go play tennis and talk about stuff. I wish I would have sought them out sooner to learn, to spend more time learning from them um, on how to exist as someone who's very passionate and opinionated and sometimes misunderstood or misinterpreted. Um, because I learned a lot from both of them, but I wish I would have started learning from them sooner. So find those, you know, if there is a professor who you know, seems like, oh, I see some of myself in them, or I see like, maybe they were like me when they were younger, and I want to be more like them when I'm older. Um, I think, yeah, really lean into those relationships, or even if you know, they're clinicians, you know, similarly from that more interpersonal perspective is learning how to temper yourself without losing yourself is so important. Imagining how difficult that's going to be going forward, tempering my outspokenness sometimes but also being true to myself and definitely something to work on yeah and I think if if I could speak to that directly at the end of the day I had to realize like you have to get really honest with yourself am I saying this because I yes I'm saying this because I care so much right and I hate the idea of misinformation being promulgated in front of classmates students whatever right but on the flip side am I doing that in a way that's risk losing people who would otherwise get on board with this message? And I think one of, and Chris, you and somebody is really good at this, right? Like asking questions will get behavior change or idea change is you're getting people to make their own conclusions about change and getting people, you're modeling how to ask questions for other people who maybe aren't already asking questions, right? And that will get you a lot further than the direct challenge will. Just like for the patient, right? I'm bone on bone. Why can't, you know, what's PT going to do for me? Well, yeah. What do you think about your bone on bone? Or yeah, I can see why it feels that way. Right. What do you think it means? You know, how do you think patients feel when we ask them about their anterior tilt that we say it like it's a medical diagnosis is totally different than you're labeling them and that's going to affect them. How do you think it makes them feel? Have patients ever expressed negative emotions to you surrounding that diagnosis, right? Oh, by the way, I read this really interesting paper. I'd love to hear your thoughts sometime. 
can I send it to you? You know, it's totally different than, well, Darlow 2013 said, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the latter is my gut instinct, just to be perfectly clear. I would much rather be like, well, this is what the evidence says, so go fuck yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've never resonated with the statement more than that, so. <laughs> There's hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great so way to end realizing it. that evidence changes and I do not want to be one of those people like right maybe Darla 2013 will be outmoded in five years maybe it won't be right but it's this idea of like if I am hanging my hat on something so staunchly now when we've already seen things change even in our short careers right something like you know Peter Sullivan CFT it was these knees and now it's like eh, is it even really any better than anything else right general exercise versus specific versus motor control. Eh, you know, all right. You can still have your preferences in your camp, but like, don't be a dick about something that might not be as exciting as you think it is. I think that's a good life lesson in general right there. That is an autobiographical life lesson. (laughs) If you think differently, I'd be less of of a dick, okay? (laughs) Be a little bit more humble and curious. (laughs) We can all work on that. Yeah. Uh, well, we really appreciate your time, Taylor. And uh, I mean, honestly, I feel like we have plenty more to talk about. So maybe have you on if you have more time in the future. Um, I think we'd both appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I would love to dig into some SNC stuff. That's my other passion is PT and SNC and the o- the overwhelming overlap sometimes and how these can be. even interprofessional relationships. I mean, you said the hip flexor athlete. I mean, I'm sure you're in touch with the AT and you start talking about these people and how people work together in the uh, interprofessional relationships that <laughs> these healthcare professionals have. So that'd be an interesting yeah. topic as well. For sure. Awesome. Thanks again, Taylor. And uh, everybody have a great week. Thanks, Alrighty. guys. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. That was, that was awesome. I really appreciate